that your throne has been turned into because of the sacrifice of Jesus that allows us to come freely anytime, as often as we want, to stay as long as we want, any time, the day or the night, and always to receive grace and mercy from that throne of grace. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. And in this small way, Lord, we long, we have a hunger for you that comes from your Holy Spirit to learn about you and to learn about your ways. But we honor you by not only having ears, but having ears to hear and a hunger and a desire to hear your word and what is on your Father's heart toward us as you've recorded in your word. And we pray that you would freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit in a, in a fresh capacity to receive your truth and to appreciate it, Lord, and to be blessed by it. And so we ask for that work of your Spirit tonight. Thank you for your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 we'll be studying tonight. And if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave, get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift to the Lord to you today. We had a little keyboard action tonight, huh? How about that? Man. I think... I think it's ready to make a comeback, actually. <laughs> Keyboards got lost a long time ago. So, anyway, enough about Billy Preston and all of the rest of that stuff. But nice to hear it glorifying the Lord. Very sweet. In Matthew chapter 13, and on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the sea. That is the Sea of Galilee. And there he is, and as he's there, he's in a period of tremendous popularity at this point in his ministry, in great multitudes. So this is more than a multitude. This is a great multitude. Multitude's big enough. This is bigger still. They were gathered together to him as he sat sitting by the Sea of Galilee, and so he did what he could do to accommodate the crowd so they could hear his teaching. They wanted him to teach, and so he got into a boat, and he sat, so it casts off just a few feet from the shore, and then he's able to have a greater angle to speak to a larger group of people. Water bounce, uh, sound bouncing off of the water, uh, it, it, it like um, you know, speakers, and, and allowing a greater number of people to hear what it is that he uh, had to hear. And so he got into the boat and he sat. And teachers in those days they sat, and the congregation stood, and the whole multitude stood there on the shore. They have no idea what he's going to teach. They have no idea what he's going to say. All they know is that anything that he's going to say, at least outwardly, they, they want to hear what it is that he is going to speak. And so you've got this great crowd. And Jesus is going to, in um, Matthew chapter 6, as Matthew uh, kind of gathers these uh, seven parables together, He's essentially going to communicate to us and communicate to the world, communicate to the multitude, but to also us as Christians that not every multitude or every crowd that gathers around Jesus, both then and today, is uh, all that it appears to be. It's made up of some very, very great complications. 
And apparently it isn't enough for God to know that and for Jesus to know that, but He wants us as Christians to know that as well, and indeed He wants the world to know it uh, as well for reasons that we'll see as we get into things here today. And so He spoke to them many things in parables, and He began here with a parable that is known as the parable of the sower. And, uh, but could more accurately be described as the parable of the soils. It describes four soils that the seed goes on, and that's the main point. There are four different kind of hearers of God's Word. And behold, a sower went out to sow. Very common image in the ancient world. Uh, they didn't have the mechanization that we had. If you were going to sow seed in a field, wheat in a field, you would take the seed in your hand and you would broadcast it. Uh, into the area that you had prepared the soil for the seed, but the wind would blow it or you wouldn't be so uh, exact that the, so the so uh, seed wouldn't go uh, someplace out of the perimeter that you intended. And so, be so behold, a sower he went out to sow. And as he sowed the seed, and here he is casting it, some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. And the wayside refers to kind of the paths that exist between uh, the fields. Um, I remember one time being in India, and here are these vast agricultural fields mostly having to do with rice in that part of southern India. I think, Tom, you saw the same thing when we were together. And uh, they didn't put fences up between their various fields. The fields were uh, differentiated by paths that marked the border of the fields, and you would walk on the paths because you certainly didn't want to walk through the field and destroy the crop. And so this uh, path that exists between the various fields, because it was walked on so much, would become very, very hard, impenetrable for seed to uh, uh, go through it. And, uh, and that was how these uh, paths in hard soil came about, the wayside as it's called. And then as the seed just falls on this hard ground, the birds then came and they devoured the seed. They're looking for a meal. And then some of the seed fell on stony ground where they did not have much earth and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was come up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, that is deep root, they withered away. And then some of the seed fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and they choked out. Uh, the wheat, but others fell on good ground and yielded a crop some 100 folds, some 60, some 30. And so here is a part soil where seed went into and they received 30 times the amount of seed that was in harvest that was uh, 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 cast and sown 60 times, 100 times. That's a, a, a farmer's dream. That was tremendous in the ancient world. And then Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, and this is the thing where Jesus understands every audience of human beings, even people that are gathering together to speak to Him. There's a lot of hearing that can go on uh, because we have ears, but we don't really have ears to hear, to really listen to what it is that God is saying here and a willingness to internalize it. And so, so oftentimes I think even in a Bible study and all a person can come in, sit down, and then find themselves 15 minutes later re-engaging in whatever's happening in the room. They've gone all over the place 
and they've come to a place to hear the Word of God without having uh, ears to hear. And so Jesus speaks this to them, and it's His way of saying, what I have just said to you is super important, and it's important that you not only hear it, but that you understand it. The disciples then came to Jesus, and they said, why do you speak to them? Why do you speak to the people in parables? So apparently this is a new way of teaching that Jesus is incorporating into his ministry at this point in time. He hadn't been teaching heavily in parables up to this point in time. So the disciples, they noticed it, and they asked him about why this change. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, because it has been given to you, to the disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he, who, and he will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, whatever he has will be taken away from him. And therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so Jesus gives this explanation uh, for the purpose of the parables. Now, in this chapter, Jesus again, he introduces uh, seven parables here. He introduces uh, each of them with, uh, and each of them are known as the kingdom parables. And the parables are each introduced with the same phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. Important to remember what a parable is. The word parable comes from two Greek words, which one is para and the other is balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. A parable means to throw something alongside. So what a parable does and what Jesus is doing is he takes something from the physical realm that is very, very familiar to his, um, uh, to his audience. And he is speaking spiritual truth to them, uh, truth concerning the kingdom of God, but some of it's a little hard for them to understand. And so he takes something from the physical realm, he throws this physical truth that they were familiar with alongside the spiritual truth that he's trying to communicate to them in order for them to understand the spiritual truth that he's saying. All of us, I think, at one time or another... We've been in some kind of a classroom and uh, public education or wherever it might be, and we're listening and we're listening and we try as we might. We're trying to understand this thing and we can't understand it. And then somebody, and then the good teachers, they'd look out in the audience and say, you're not getting it, are you? You know, it's okay. He's reading our faces or she's reading our faces. He said, well, it's kind of like this. And the moment the person would say, it's kind of like this, there would be the hope that he's going to say or she's going to say something that is going to make this thing click for us. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving them very, very deep teaching concerning uh, the kingdom of heaven, and now he wants them to understand, and he does so by way of uh, these uh, giving of the parables. Now, the... Uh, subject that Jesus is trying to teach the disciples here. So he's giving them parables to give them insight into something, something that's not so easy to understand. So we have to ask ourselves, what is his point? What is he trying to teach the disciples and the multitude concerning? And what he is trying to teach them about is this thing called the kingdom 
of heaven. Again, these are the kingdom parables. He's trying to describe to them the kingdom of heaven. So this then raises the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? What does the kingdom of heaven mean exactly? In the Bible, there are two phrases that are oftentimes confused as to mean uh, the same thing every time they're used. Sometimes you'll read about the kingdom of God, and then you'll read about the kingdom of heaven. And most often we think about those phrases as just something that uh, Jesus uses interchangeably, that they mean the same thing. And sometimes they do within the Bible. But they don't always mean the same thing, and they certainly don't always mean the same thing in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew's gospel, the phrase, the kingdom of God, never refers to unsaved people. It only refers to saved people. While the kingdom of heaven refers to both saved people and then also those who aren't saved, and even those who profess to be Christians, but they are not Christians. And so it refers to this great crowd of people who clustered around Jesus, that clusters around Jesus even to this day. They're attracted to Him. They're attracted to His life. They're attracted to His teaching. They're attracted to His miracles. They're attracted to by the possibility uh, of heaven and Jesus' teaching concerning heaven, and those crowds were made up of those who were genuinely saved, but then also those who for one reason or another were not saved, but they gave the appearance of being saved. To look at that crowd around Jesus, you could not have figured out who is serious about following Jesus and learning from Him and who isn't, not by outward appearance. But Jesus knew that in any crowd that's before Him, there are at least two kinds of people, and in this parable that He gives concerning the soils, uh, that it is at least four different kinds of people. Now, the reason that He spoke in parables, and He tells us here in this last section that we read, is for two main reasons. The first reason and the main reason is to further reveal spiritual truth to His disciples, to those who really want to follow Jesus, those that are really interested in His truth. They want to know what it is that He's saying, and so He uses these parables to help them understand what can be sometimes difficult concepts concerning the kingdom of God. He also used parables, interestingly enough, in order to hide the truth from other people, to hide the truth. Again, He's not going to cast His pearl before swine to hide the truth from those who gave the appearance of being sincere seekers or sincere followers of Him, but they were actually just wanting to see a miracle that He would do, but they're really indifferent to Him or indifferent to His teaching. He's a sideshow. There were many now at this point in time in Jesus' ministry who were following Him and listening to Him with the idea of finding fault in His life. The religious leaders of the Jews constituted a portion of this crowd that Jesus is speaking to, and they didn't come as honest hearers. They came in order to find fault. And so Jesus spoke in parables in order that that group of people would have His truth hidden from, uh, from them. And so a parable, it always reveals or conceals based upon the heart of the listener, the person who is really interested in knowing God. 
seeking out the truth of God, and the parable will then give them insight that allows them to understand what God is saying. The person who's not really interested in spiritual truth, they're not going to fight their way through the parable to try and understand uh, anything, and so they'll find the truth of the parable concealed and, uh, and you know, made... Uh, uh, you know, without revelation for them because of their insincerity or because of their indifference. It's an interesting thing to me and uh, uh, as a citizen of the United States of America, and, uh, but I think it's true of the whole world, actually, in mankind, that people assume, at least what I see in the culture around me by and large, that they can be indifferent to God and indifferent to the things of Him without impunity. Uh, you look at the, go to the mall, uh, go anywhere, go anywhere on a Sunday where everybody ought to be in church someplace, worshiping the Lord. And you see how many people uh, don't care about God, don't give a thought to God, don't care whether He exists or He doesn't exist, don't give the slightest, don't even give five minutes of their entire life to study of the Word of God or the seeking out of God, none of that. And the idea is that a person can do that and not pay a price for that or to do that and somehow believe that that's okay with God and there aren't consequences related to that. And it's just how upside down everything is in the world. Even within Christianity, I, I see it and I witness it getting more and more so um, as the decades go on. And there's this almost like this frenzy that is... Uh, within sometimes Christian leaders, or it can happen to us even, even as Christians, and we feel like it's our responsibility to save everybody, or it's our responsibility to get them interested in the Word of God, or to break through the indifference of the world by and large to the Word of God. And we should obey every prompting of the Holy Spirit and anything God wants us to say or to do to people in that regard. But that is not our responsibility. When God opens His mouth, all of creation should stand at attention and give Him their full attention. There should never even be one single wit of indifference to what God has to say. There should never be any indifference on the part of anyone toward the Word of God and toward the Word of God as it's being spoken or as it's being read. And there's this weird kind of chip on people's shoulders today or a very wrong understanding of where responsibility for this lies. And our culture almost puts it completely upon God. God, if you're out there and you're real, then you're going to have to break through my very busy world, my very disinterested heart, and do some kind of a miracle to get through to me. And there's never the realization that, hey, there might be something wrong with me that there's a God and He's written this book and that He's talking all of the time and that there's a Holy Spirit that wants to give life to this book to anyone who's willing to allow that to happen. And everything is upside down in the culture in this way. And there's this belief that God's got to do all of it and He's got to do all of the heavy lifting. But there's something wrong with a human being, whether they sit in this room tonight or whether they are anywhere else in Modesto or anywhere else in the world, there's something wrong with a person who has no interest in God and the one who has created them and no interest in His Word 
and engages in a collective yawn every time he speaks. And so to that kind of person, God doesn't feel compelled to throw the richness of his truth out before them and then have them yawn before it or show disinterest in it. Think about how offensive that would be to God. Think about how offensive that would be to anyone where they are pouring out the greatest depths of their heart, the greatest expressions of their love, what is most important to them. Here they are communicating in this way, and the Bible is this book from God, and it's met with an audience of one or 10,000 by indifference. It's an insult to God. It's an affront to God. And so God speaks in parables in order that the one group that is interested, they will gain insight, and the group that isn't interested at all, then the uh, parable and the uh, insight of, and, and the teaching of the truth, and it won't open up for them at all. And Jesus declared that all of this, the speaking in parables, was a prophecy uh, given by God through the prophet Isaiah. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Speaking of the Messiah, he's going to come. He's going to speak in parables. This is what's going to happen. And seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. And then underline it at least with your eyes and maybe with your pen. And their eyes they have closed. God's trying to reach every single person in this world every single day. It's one of the comforts of my heart concerning the people that I love and care about and aren't saved yet, and I want them to be saved, is to know that in the next 24 hours, he is never going to stop trying to break through in their life. God is always trying uh, to engage, to reveal himself and all. But they have this, this closed eyes, this shutoff is the responsibility uh, of the person. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. And then Jesus spoke to the disciples, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Isaiah, how they would have, what they would have given to be able to just spend. Here they are, they're spending decades of their life, their entire lives under the old covenant telling people about God. And uh, think about if the offer could have been made to them for, you know, at the end of all of that, to just spend one day with Jesus in the course of his three-and-a-half-year public ministry, just to hear the teaching, just to hear his voice, just to see his face, just to see the miracles, just to see the heart that he had. And the disciples and this crowd had the privilege of being able to hear that and see that every single day for three-and-a-half years. And Jesus is letting them know, the disciples know about the privilege of the age in which they lived, and it was a very, very uh, privileged age. And therefore he said, hear the parable of the sower. So he spoke it to a multitude, 
of people who are believers and unbelievers, just the crowd that comes around to hear what Jesus is going to have to say. And he gives now the explanation of the parable uh, to his disciples. He said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, so we know that the seed represents the word of God, and they don't understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. This is the one who received the seed of the Word of God by the wayside. And so here you've got the seed that's being broadcast. It falls on the hardness of that path. And, uh, and as that seed falls on the hardness uh, of that path where people have been walking and walking and, and all, and the compaction of it, the seed doesn't penetrate, so the seed lies on the surface and the birds make quick work of it. And spiritually speaking, this speaks of the human heart that is hardened against the Word of God. And there are people who harden their heart against the Word of God, and they will not allow it to penetrate their heart. They're determined not to give the Word of God any hope of making an impression in their life or getting any kind of a start. And so this is the heart that is completely closed to the gospel, and their heart is hardened uh, toward it. Every time um, I stand up in front on a Sunday and I declare the gospel to people, uh, the need for the gospel, the need to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the opportunity to do so and receive everlasting life and repenting of our sins. There'll be pastors and others who'll be up front immediately after the service to answer your questions and to pray with you. And every time a person hears that and refuses to receive that gospel and act upon it, it is because their heart is hardened and they harden it even more hard uh, in order to, uh, you know, deflect the invitation of God. And so the hardness of heart that is uh, described here, it's absolutely closed. There's nothing that God could say or do at that moment in time that would change their mind. Their minds are made up. Now notice in that verse 19, when you read that phrase, does not understand, understand that the Greek word for understand there is not speaking of a person who's trying to understand something, but they can't. We've all been in that place, haven't we? I'm trying to understand, but I can't. Can you tell it to me one more way? I mean, I'm as motivated as I possibly can be. Not talking about that kind of person. God never shuts the revelation off to that kind of a person. It speaks of a person who is unwilling to unite with what they're hearing. It speaks about a deliberate rejection. So this is not an issue of a problem with the intellect, but it's a problem of the heart. And Jesus knows the part that the devil is very, very happy to play in all of this. And so the, when the Word of God gets sown into a human heart or mind, it's left there, it's unappreciated, it's not acted upon. The devil comes in immediately and he snatches it away. Because the devil knows the potential of every single Christian. And he doesn't want to lose a single person to God or the kingdom of God. So as soon as he can get that gospel and get that Word of God out of their heart, he is happy uh, to do it. The sad thing is that so often uh, this kind of person that's so hard to God and they're so closed off to God and, and all, they sometimes 
think that the Word of God has no impact upon them because they're so smart and they're so intelligent and they're so sophisticated and so forth. All of this pride that Satan likes to nurture and what they don't realize is it's the devil that is ripping them off in that. That's what's really happening. Satan is taking that seed away from them and there's a very real demonic dimension in all of this. This is why we talked at least in first service about sharing with Mormons or Jehovah Witnesses on our doorstep and sharing the gospel really with anyone. And uh, uh, so important that once we get done talking with them, then to immediately to find some place, and you don't have to find a phone booth and uh, become Superman or anything like that, but it can happen even as we're talking to people and to pray, Lord, put a hedge of protection around the seed that's been sown into this person's heart. Protect it from the devil taking it away from them and engaging them in a spiritual warfare that's always involved around the Word of God and uh, in a person's salvation. And then he goes on and he declares the second soil, but he who received the seed on stony places, soil that is rocky or stony, this is he who hears the word and immediately he rejoices, uh, he receives it with joy, and yet it has no deep root in himself but endures only for a time. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles or he falls away. And so this is the kind of soil where... And there's a lot of it in Israel where you've got this layer of topsoil, but it isn't very far down below that you've got hard pan or you've got actual rock. Well, in the spring, you know, the seed gets sown, and the, the sower, the farmer, he doesn't know exactly where all of these places are necessarily. That seed gets sown into that soil, and then the sun comes out, and because uh, rock or stone uh, brings in the heat, it attracts the heat, it then radiates heat, then that seed so often looks like Superman. I mean, it really starts to grow, it germinates, it starts to come forth very, very quickly, and, um, but its root is very, very shallow. And so there's a second kind of listener to the Word of God who listens, but the Word of God doesn't penetrate very far. It's just uh, their relationship when they receive the gospel. It's a very, very emotional experience that they have with God, but the Word of God never goes down deep in their life. They never commit to being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, whatever the cost might be. And so, ultimately, a person identifies themselves as a Christian, then pretty soon the world is going to start to treat you as a Christian, which means there's going to be difficulty and tribulation, persecution for our faith. And when that starts to happen in this person's life, well, they have no deep commitment to the Lord and only an emotional experience, and so then they fall away. And it's one of the four common listeners that are listening to the Word of God on any given Sunday in any given church around the world or uh, watching Christian television or listening to Christian radio, uh, you know, in the course uh, of the day. And so there's no commitment. It's just emotion. They stick with the Lord as long as everything's going great for them, and then problems start to happen, and they're gone. And then there's the uh, third kind of soil described in verse 22, and this is probably the most focused uh, related to the United States of America and our prosperity of our Western culture, though I think we're creeping more and more toward um, you know, the second soil as well. And Jesus said, 
Now he who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and then this person becomes unfruitful, spiritually unfruitful. I like, I think we talk about the, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and it's wonderful King James and New King James. Sometimes it can be hard to get our mind around it. I like how it's translated in the New Living Translation, the worries of life and the lure of wealth. And so he's the one who, he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word of God and the worries of life and the lure of wealth uh, chokes out the word and he becomes unfruitful. And so here is seed. Uh, the wheat begins to grow, but then all of these other things in their life, uh, all of the temptations of the world, the life that the world offers, the lure for wealth and prosperity, this becomes even more important than uh, the things of God and all, and pretty soon it chokes out uh, the spiritual life and that uh, kind of a person. This is the person that's kind of preoccupied with what everybody else in life is preoccupied with, and that is, you know, living for time rather than eternity, living for materialism, and he who dies with the most toys wins, and, and that whole kind of thing. And so this is also known as the crowded heart, the heart in which the Word of God ultimately gets crowded out in a person's life in terms of any effectiveness or influence in their life by all of the things of the world. Their life becomes so full of these other things and the desire for these things that the Word of God never gets any kind of a meaningful place uh, in their life. They never allow it to be, have that kind of, um, of a uh, priority within their life until finally the whole purpose and the plan of God for their life becomes uh, choked out and their life is making no more difference for God than an unsaved person and uh, in terms of the kingdom of, of God. And it's interesting, these people aren't debauched people. These people aren't notorious sinners. These people aren't making the headlines of Modesto B uh, in terms of sin or any of these kind of things. They're not guilty of any kind of heinous crime, but this is what gets them. And, uh, and it is very, very effective in uh, uh, choking out the effectiveness of God's Word within our lives. You think about uh, those of you who've walked with the Lord for a while, uh, let's say at least for months and let's say for years and maybe five or more years and for decades, and how many of the people that you began with in your Christian life who had a hunger for the Word of God, a desire for the Word of God, and a love for God and His Word and His plan for their life that was greater than anything that the world could ever offer them, and what percentage of those people are still in that place? There's a huge number of people that succumb uh, to this uh, third kind of place because it's in their heart. It's, it's how they listen to the Word of God now and, and the effect that all of it has on the Word of God. So God is speaking about this. This is when he speaks about, uh, so here we see a large crowd on the sea of, shore of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is speaking to them, and it looks like, wow, revival. Everybody just loves God like crazy, and they're all in on this. Everyone's denying themselves, taking up their cross, and following after Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus says, now let me show you what's in a crowd here. And it can, in this parable, it searches our hearts tonight. 
And we're here, we can begin, man, going with the Lord and boom, 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 and all of that, and then, and then to look at compared to how we began, and we should be light years ahead of that. And I'm not talking about legalism, but knowing Him, loving Him, understanding the Word of God in a way that's richer and deeper each year and, and, and so forth. And, and then uh, to realize that even tonight we look, might look and say, oh, my, my hunger for the Word of God tails in comparison to the old days, and a chance to recognize it and to turn from it. But he who received seed, and here's the fourth soil, on the good ground, is he who hears the Word of God and understand it, who indeed bears fruit and produces a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. And so the seed always falls on good soil as well as it's being preached and as it's being shared, as the gospel is being shared. And so what is good ground? Well, any ground that isn't hard and it isn't shallow and it isn't crowded. And when a heart, when a heart is, is freed from those things, then it's able to allow the seed, the Word of God, to do in uh, in that life and in that heart what uh, God wants, uh, you know, to do in that life. And so here is that life. Here is the person who receives the gospel, gives their life to the Lord, and then is committed to following God's Word and growing in Christian character, growing in their Christian service. And so this is the crowd. And every crowd that gathers around the name of Jesus anywhere in the world 2,000 years ago and anywhere in the world today is made up of these four listeners every single time. And even when Jesus was ministering the Word of God, even when He was doing it, just one in four possessed a heart that was good, a heart that was the right kind of heart, respectful heart, to receive the Word of God. And so sometimes we get a little bit discouraged when we share the gospel with people and everyone doesn't come to know the Lord as a result. Well, even Jesus, as He shared His teaching and the gospel and repent for the kingdom of God is at it, is it hand and all. He didn't have a, bat a, a thousand on any of that, didn't even bat a hundred. He looked at the audiences and realized even with him there was that one in four. But uh, the fact that there is that one in four, so to speak, or whatever the proportion might actually be, is never a reflection on the seed. There's never anything wrong with a seed. It's always a reflection on the human heart, and we need to know that. Because as we share the Word of God and as we share the gospel as Christians, because there is so much rejection related toward it, and in our culture now, and increasingly so, there is so much disrespect shown toward God and toward the Word of God that we can begin to think there's something wrong with a seed. There's nothing wrong with a seed. It is merely reflecting to us the condition of the hearts of the people that we share the Word of God with. And so keep on sowing the seed, keep on sharing the Word of God as one of the encouragements of the parable. As we come then into <clears throat> this uh, uh, verse, 20, uh, verse 24, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while the men slept, and so they've had a hard day out at work, they've sown the seed, now it's time to go to sleep. They go to sleep, 
An enemy came in in the, in the middle of the night, and then he sowed tares. And the tares here are darnel. It's a weed. It's a poisonous weed. And it's an interesting thing, the darnel, is that when the darnel, uh, when a, a wheat uh, plant begins to come up out of the ground and a darnel plant becomes, comes up out of the ground, they both look identical early on. But the more the maturity occurs with the plants, the more it becomes apparent that they're not the same thing. A darnel looks like a wheat plant in the early stages, but it never, ever produces fruit, never, ever produces any kind of, of maturity that way. So he comes in, and he sows these tares then among the wheat, and then he goes on his way in the hopes of destroying the entire uh, wheat crop. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then uh, also the tares also began to appear within the crop. And so the servants of the owner, they're confused. They sowed the seed. They knew they used good seed. And they said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, do you want us to go and gather them up, go out and de, you know, de-darnell the, uh, the field and pull up all of the weeds? And he said, no, lest when you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares, bind them together in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn, that is, into heaven. God's people, speaking of all of that there. He goes in, he gives the explanation, Jesus does, as we jump a couple of parables, the parable of the mustard seed and, and leaven, and we go to verse 36, and then Jesus sent the multitude away, and he went into a house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And so he gives them an explanation of the parables. Some of the parables are hard to understand, um, but these two parables, the first two that he gives, Jesus gives us an explanation of what they mean so that we can understand exactly what's being communicated. So he declares that the field is the world that we live in. And the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, that is, Christians. And everywhere all around the world, God has sown his people and planted them all around the world as a witness for him. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one, that is, the devil. And the enemy who sowed uh, them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. And therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels. They will gather uh, out of his kingdom all of the things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. These are the characteristics of, of those tares. Uh, they uh, offend and they practice lawlessness and then will cast them into the furnace of fire, speaking of Gehenna, eternal judgment, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The wailing, speaking of the emotional uh, torment of uh, Gehenna, the gnashing of teeth, the physical horror uh, of eternal damnation, and then the righteous, in contrast, will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of the Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so this is the, the, the parable of 
the, uh, the wheat and, uh, and the tares. Interesting thing here is in this particular parable and the two parables that follow it, um, all, each of these parables describes Satan's opposition to the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus gives us three, three parables here which reveal to us the three ways in which Satan attempts to infiltrate the work of God in order to oppose it. And the first way that he tries to oppose God's work within the world is through, described here in the parable of the wheat and uh, uh, of the tares. He describes the, what differentiates here a tear from the wheat. Again, as I mentioned, a tear never bears fruit. So there's no fruit, there's no evidence of the Holy Spirit's uh, work in uh, a person's life, and, um, and that's an evidence of a tear. A second thing, evidence is that they offend. They cause people to stumble. So all around the world, you have God planting his people as a witness for him. All of the nations of the world, every tribe, every kindred, every nation, every tongue, because we know that that's in heaven, uh, people from all of those different groups are going to be singing praises uh, to God. So he has his people all around uh, the world. But the tares are the sons of the wicked one. These are the people who look like Christians, but they aren't. They may profess Christ. They may like religious gatherings, but they're not born again, and they are false uh, Christians. So they never bear fruit. They offend. They cause people to stumble. And number three, he says that they practice lawlessness. Instead of their life being marked by obedience to the Word of God, they practice lawlessness. And I want you to notice in verse 41, very important to understand because sometimes we think about practicing lawlessness and because we sin or we struggle with sin as Christians that somehow this is a description of us. It's not describing that. The word practice is very, very significant. He's not talking about the person who's trying to live for God, falls short in our sins and, and trying to live for God in that way. This is lawlessness. This is disobedience and rebellion against God that characterizes this person's life. And so the enemy, he sows that seed and and, uh, and here's this reaping at the end of the age. The reapers are uh, the angels. The end of the age is the day of judgment, and Jesus will then send out his angels, gather out of his kingdom all that offend and those who practice lawlessness. And as we've seen, they'll be cast into a furnace of fire, and then those that the righteous will shine forth, verse 43, as the sun in the kingdom of their father. They'll be gathered into the barn, as we're told in verse 30, into heaven, blessed forevermore. Jesus is saying, and it's an important thing for us to realize, I mean, why would Jesus tell us this? Except we need to know it as Christians. And the importance of realizing that this, uh, that this form of opposition by the devil against what God is doing in the world is going to go on till the end of the age. It wasn't going to just be in the first century. It wasn't just going to be in the 21st century. From the time of Jesus' ministry until the time that the tares and the wheat are separated and there's that white throne judgment that things give way to a new heaven and a new earth, this is just going to be the way that things happen in the world for us as we work 
to expand the kingdom uh, of God and as we fulfill God's plan is called upon our lives. But one day he's going to just deal with it with finality. The tares are going to be uh, separated forever from the wheat and the false is going to be separated from the true. Now, the lesson here in this particular parable is significant, and that is that wherever you have a legitimate work of God's Holy Spirit going on among His people in the world, uh, Satan will attempt to disrupt it and to spoil its impact by planting false Christians among it, and it, it's part of His plan. There isn't a church that is thriving or exists in the world and certainly speaking about Christendom as a whole around the world, every time and everywhere God is working in this way, the devil comes in and he tries to oppose by joining, in, so to speak. And so he will send his people into the midst of it. They'll give the appearance of being a Christian, but they're nothing of the sort. And why does he do it? Well, Jesus said in order to offend people in verse 41, in order to scandalize, scandalize people, in order to stumble or to confuse people concerning Christ or concerning Christianity or concerning Christians. And, and so how do they do that? How do they create confusion in the minds of the world as they look at Christianity and Christ and look at Christians? How do these tares among the wheat create that kind of confusion? How do they do it? Well, by claiming to be a Christian but then living a life of lawlessness or sin. So tear Christianity gives the appearance of being Christianity, but it isn't real Christianity, and they do terrible damage. It is a, a significant thing. You know, when a person says, yeah, I'm a Christian, uh, virtually everybody believes that about them. And when the unsaved world hears somebody profess to know Christ, then they watch that person's life and they assume that what they are now seeing is true Christianity. They're seeing what Christ is like, the kind of people that he produces, and they're coming to a conclusion not only about the person, but Christianity and Jesus himself. And so that whole dynamic is, is going on. And so if the devil is able to bring someone in, claim to be a Christian, and then live a life of open hypocrisy or open sin, then people who don't know any better, they don't know that not everybody who calls themselves a Christian actually is a Christian. And by the way, this is almost like new news to Christians, let alone to non-Christians, then it confuses them. And they look at Christianity and they say, I don't want anything to do with that. Because Christianity, it's all hypocrisy. I once knew a Christian who claimed to be a Christian, and he went to bed with more people, or she went to bed with more people than I could ever mention. They supplied more drugs to more people. They cheated and they lied worse than any pagan I ever knew. And they don't realize they're not looking at real wheat. They're looking at a tear. And Satan knows how to get, maximize this thing. So important, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, do not believe every single Christian who says that they are a Christian. Please don't do that. You'll know that they're a Christian, not by the fact that they're perfect, but that they're serious about their relationship with God, and they're growing in that relationship with God. They obey His 
word. And that's how you know a Christian, not this other kind of thing. And so terror Christianity, it, it, it looks like Christianity, and, uh, and it, but it isn't, and it does terrible damage. And, and they actually, what happens with the tares, and I think we're currently moving into this age, it's happening at some kind of speed at this point in time, in my mind, and headed toward warp speed, is that uh, things can get so confusing for people about what Christianity actually is and what it isn't because we've become very post-Christian within our culture is that the tear Christians then actually begin to marginalize true Christianity and true Christians. And so here you have the tear Christians. They don't believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the authority of the Word of God, the necessity of obeying the Word of God, the need to be born again until now as a Christian. When you talk to somebody else, you talk to a non-Christian about what the Bible has to say about being born again, about the need for salvation, about marriage being his institution, talking to him about his condemnation of homosexuality, and not just homosexual sin, but also fornication, a heterosexual sin, talking about what the Bible has to say about drugs and so forth and all of this. And more and more in this culture, you can talk to somebody about what the Bible says and talk to them as a Christian, and they'll say, I know lots of Christians who don't believe those things. I know lots of Christians who don't hold that position concerning sexual immorality or concerning drugs, or concerning this, or concerning that, and I happen to like those Christians better, and I happen to like that Christianity better, I think you're the kook. And if you don't think we're being marginalized at this moment by Darnells and by carnal Christians in the body of Christ today, then you're not paying attention. We will be the kooks in the end. I don't, isn't it great? You come to church tonight and say, oh, God, lift me up. Give me some word of encouragement. But it's, you know, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We will be in a minority. And the greatest enemy, not only to the things of God, the greatest enemy to us and our effectiveness will not be the out-and-out -out sex, drugs, and rock-and-roll pagans. It will be people who claim to be Christians and who are not and are redefining Christianity to an entire culture, a culture that wants to uh, lap all of it up and will be responsible for doing so. But it's happening right before our eyes. And God says here that He will judge it and not to be surprised by it, not to be disheartened by it, not to quit under the weight of it. What difference is my life making? And, and, and this thing is going like gangbusters, and there's so much of this kind of stuff. And Jesus warns us about this kind of thing ahead of time. It's going to go on to the end of the age in order that we might stay focused on what He has called us to do and not to allow this kind of thing to discourage us or to derail us, Jesus warned us that it would be the case. And so that's the first uh, form of, of, uh, uh, of opposition that Satan takes uh, against the kingdom of God in, in this uh, planting of what looks like Christianity but is a false Christianity and putting it right next to Christianity in order to marginalize it, discredit it, to stumble people and to confuse them about what Christianity really is like. And an awful lot of it going on 
And uh, I'm going to be a good boy tonight, and I'm going to stop there. And we'll look at the second two devices. Lord willing, if we're still here, help us not to be here. Lord, next week, the rapture, if we put our vote in, uh, there's no other election I'm interested in at the moment and participating in, but that election, and uh, we'll look at the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven next week as we continue to look at these very, very important and very, very instructive uh, parables. Well, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I know when we're down to our last five minutes here, but I'd like them just to lead us in one more worship song before they lead us in the closing worship song and just give us a chance for our heart to just settle before him tonight, worship him once again, and, and uh, have him put any kind of finishing touches upon our life that he might uh, desire to do in the light of what we've looked at tonight. Highly exhortive passage here tonight, a very searching passage. But, you know, um, well, I'd say we'll have donuts for you after the service, but we didn't plan for it. But sometimes that's just the way uh, the Word of God is, but all of it necessary. Let's worship the Lord. Samuel. <laughs>